Hi, this is Liz Tinkham, and welcome to Third Act, a podcast about people embracing the third act of their lives with a new sense of purpose and direction. The third act begins when your script ends, but your show's not finished. Welcome back to the first episode of season two of Third Act. I'm incredibly excited to be joined by two special guests, Coco Brown and Scott Smith, the couple of unconventionalists. Coco is the founder and CEO of the Athena Alliance, the sponsor of this podcast and the top digital platform for community learning and access to opportunity for women in business. Her husband, Scott, is a senior manager of partner enablement at Databricks, a data and AI company that combines the best of data warehouses and data lakes. Coco and Scott fell in love in the 90s in the go-go tech market of San Francisco. When they had their son, Kai, they planned to quit their jobs and take off in their van again for a big adventure. But then the unexpected happened. Coco got an offer at work that she just couldn't refuse. Soon Scott was at home with as a full-time dad, shunned by the local moms and trying to support Coco. Coco's career continued to skyrocket, yet she was plagued by constant feelings of guilt and wanting to be home with her kids. Sound familiar? While their story is more commonplace now, in the early 2000s, only 5% of dads stayed at home. On today's podcast, they talk about how they manage their role reversal and how they're pursuing their passions in their third acts. They also talk about the lessons they learned through the years together and what they want their children, Kai and Malia, to take away. Coco and Scott, welcome to the show and thank you for doing this together. Super excited to do it with you. So Scott, I know I interviewed you for season one of Third Act, but given what you've both been through together and what you're doing in your third acts, I thought it'd be fun to hear the combined story. So thanks for putting up with me twice. Great. No problem. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So you guys, this story resonated with me, and I think it will really resonate with our listeners along a couple lines. First, you survived a bit of a role reversal when Scott stayed home with the kids, which at the time, and I've got some stats on that is a little unusual, uh, probably more common now. And that two, now you're both working in what I would call either your 2.5 or third act, you can tell me, in fields that it seems like you're both really passionate about. So I want to get into both. But first, I want to go back and talk a little bit about your first act. So Scott, if I remember correctly, you were your first act was at Virginia Tech. Uh, you graduated a degree in environmental sciences, but soon you found yourself on a goat ranch around Santa Cruz, which sparked an interest in data and analytics. So maybe quickly tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So yeah, it's a, a little bit of an unusual path, but on the goat ranch, it was a biotech goat ranch that producing antibodies with goats. And um, I found myself soon in charge of the database that was being used to manage the ranch's day-to-day activities and got really interested in the uh, data that we were collecting on those animals and in, in doing some predictive analytics to help the uh, company understand better how to correlate things like medical history and breed with antibody production. And did that lead then to subsequent jobs in sort of that what sparked your sort of early love of data analytics or early interest in it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, just, you know, the realization that, you know, I had um, in my background, my educational background, you know, exposure to uh, a lot of math and statistics, a little bit of computer science, uh, Fortran's my, well, that'll date me, but that was me too. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, yeah, between those, 
those pieces of my education, uh, realizing that there was enough data being collected on these animals to statistically be significant and realizing the power of a database to be able to collect and then do analytics on that data was, you know, it doesn't sound like anything uh, today that's surprising, but uh, back then, I think that was, that was definitely a realization for me and really, uh, you know, set me off down a path. Yeah. Now, Coco, you know, it's funny, I've known you for a while and I've never talked to you about where you went to school. So I had to go back and look it up. So you went to the University of Pennsylvania. That's all I know. So why'd you go there? What were you thinking about majoring in and what were you going to do? I went to the University of Pennsylvania, uh, majored in psychology. And yeah, I I came from a family that had never worked in corporate America. My mom was a psychologist and a social worker, and she was also a nurse. And so, you know, everything other than corporate. And my dad was an educator. He was a PhD in economics and he taught economics at various universities and long-term strategy and planning. And so I didn't know I would end up in corporate America. That That's for sure. Um, but I also knew that I was really interested in people, but I wasn't interested necessarily in being a clinical psychologist because I figured I would end up too wrapped up in everybody's issues. And I didn't want to do research for sure because I felt too guilty about all of that. So I, um, I landed in HR to begin with. And how did you end up in San Francisco? Well, so this is a story that doesn't actually exist because it's a pre Scott story, but I followed Mm. my then boyfriend. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. He was getting his PhD at Stanford and we figured it was going to be five years and you know, why not? I, and I came out to Silicon Valley, actually literally as silly as this sounds, not knowing that there was a Silicon Valley because I was a liberal arts major in psychology. <laughs> Did you get, is that where you got your job in HR or how'd yeah. you get into to tech to start? Yeah. I mean, well, so part of the reason you go to Penn is because it's an incredible network and uh, I leveraged my network and other students that I knew and landed a job with a uh, consulting firm out here in the HR space. And the very first thing I did was I was thrown into all of these tech startups to help them jumpstart their HR function. Um, So everything other than recruiting, which, you know, usually small companies think of recruiting as being the HR function, but it was employee handbooks and benefits administration and compensation management and design and that sort of stuff. Super fun. So how did you guys end up meeting? Well, so um, Scott went from Santa Cruz Biotech, which was the goat ranch, uh, right. to what was the name of the the next one? Shaman Pharmaceuticals. Shaman Pharmaceuticals. And I had a roommate. I was living in a, a big house in Pacifica with five five women, late 20s. And one of my roommates worked with Scott at Shaman Pharmaceuticals and invited him to Thanksgiving dinner at our place. And... I don't know, we ran into each other somewhere between the kitchen and the living room and decided to sit on the stairs and have dinner together. <laughs> now, Scott, since I've had the benefit of interviewing you before, I know there was a bit of a pursuit that happened. So maybe you could say a few more <laughs> words about that. Sure. Well, uh, after after our Thanksgiving dinner together, I, I was smitten and... Um, <laughs> Coco, uh, I don't think at the time, uh, took me very seriously. And so uh, there was a bit of pursuit from Thanksgiving until Easter, <laughs> where where I, I think I asked her out a few times when she was dating other people. 
a little bit outside of my normal comfort zone, but, but yeah, it, it took, a, it took a few months and I had to, had to be patient and, mm-hmm. and uh, persistent. <laughs> Persistence had clearly paid off. So Scott, so your career as a technologist is growing, you're a shaman and then to Aperture. I mean, what were you, where were you headed? Did you have any sense of what you wanted to do at that point? Well, I knew I wanted to work with data and I knew that, that the, the predictive analytics is the best thing that we had to call it back then was really something of interest to me. So um, it actually was working at Aperture doing a project where I, I ran a team, a professional services team there and doing some work on a project for Amazon, which at the time we were doing a, a database project that documented all of their infrastructure and assets for all of their data centers globally, which was three buildings in downtown Seattle. <laughs> um, early, early days of Amazon, right? Yeah. They only sold books. They hadn't made a profit. And data centers were a very new thing at the time. Uh, so co-location facilities, there was no cloud, but that was kind of the closest thing that was cropping up. And I was doing a lot of work with Aperture in those kinds of facilities. And at Amazon uh, was where in talking to a lot of people in those data centers, I realized how much behavioral data was coming through their servers and networks, and they were realizing it as well. And so that kind of sparked the, the idea that, you know, those kind of analytics could be used to predict people's behavior and provide them a, a better and more efficient uh, browsing experience or web experience. So I certainly wasn't the first one to come up with the idea, but it kind of came to me um, through experience, and and um, that's that's kind of where I was headed at the time. So I was looking for a, a next role in that space, and there were a few startups that were that were starting to do that kind of work. Blue Martini was one that I, that I almost took a job with, and um, and that's when everything changed. And let's talk about that change. So. Coco, tell us about Taos, and how did you go from being a staff manager to president and COO? (laughs) Yeah, so um, the short answer on that is that right around when I was 28 years old, 1999, we hired in a vice president of professional services, and within two weeks, he was gone. And I was asked by the executive team, at the time I was at this point a manager of um, staff management, which essentially meant... I was responsible for a couple of cities and all the consultants associated with those cities. We were a professional services firm in the deep infrastructure space. I was asked by the executive team to come to an offsite and present on behalf of all of professional services, which, you know, I really didn't know, training and development and system support and and various others. And so I just showed up at this offsite did a good job of presenting what we needed to be as a collective organization and what, you know, how that should be organized. And a week later, I was asked whether or not I wanted to run the team. And I said, sure. The CEO asked and I said, sure. And and he said, go think about how you do that. You know, what's the structure? And so I came back with vice president, professional services at the top of an org chart. And he sort of looked at me like, uh, <laughs> I don't think he was expecting me to think that that's where I was going to go. But I thought, well, those are the shoes I'm filling. So he deliberated for another week and then decided to give me the title. 
And six months later, I asked for the salary to come along with the title. Uh, I proved myself for six months and then said, hey, whatever you were paying that guy, that's what you should be paying me, right? And so they did. Gave me the biggest bump I could have. I mean, I remember Scott and I being like, oh my God, can you believe what I'm making now? This is insane. And then that there was this meteoric rise and and I was running about two thirds of the business as because of the nature of the business. We grew to about a hundred million in revenue. And then the dot-com bust happened. We crashed to 10 million in revenue, had to lay off 750 people, 700-ish people, shut down offices all over the country. And this is part of our transition story now, but it was after that that I became president and COO. At this point, you guys are together. Did you know you wanted to head kids? And if you did, had you talked about how you were going to handle your careers? <laughs> we we both come from divorced families. So, you know, for us, we were kind of like, ah, who wants to get married? Right. Forget that. But, but I think I, you know, cornered Scott in Big Sur one day around Chris, uh, New Year's Eve and said, you know, the clock is ticking. And for some reason, I need a baby right now. (laughs) (laughs) So that was the discussion? I think so, Scott. Yeah, I mean, I think we had, we had decided and determined that we wanted to be life partners. But we didn't want the marriage piece, right, go with it. Uh, We felt like that could be an excuse to become lazy and just wasn't something that we'd had great experiences with from our own families. Uh, but we had had discussions about that and about family. The timing thing, I think Coco did, did, uh, did kind of push that, that issue, but I was, <laughs> I was game. And what about, so, you know, after you got pregnant, I mean, did you talk about, okay, the baby's going to come, somebody's going to take, how, how that might work? Yeah, we had big plans. We had uh, sort of enough of a nest egg set aside, and we were both wanting to kind of reevaluate our careers a bit. Uh, we both had creative interests, and we neither of us was completely certain that long term what we wanted for our life was corporate career in Silicon Valley. And so we had saved up money and made plans to take off for a year once our baby was born and old enough to have been done with shots and travel. And we were gonna take off for a year and travel around. And uh, we had a landing zone planned. And you know we wanted to kind of explore and figure out if we wanted to return to Silicon Valley and if we wanted to return to a corporate, corporate career life or pursue other interests. And that's, that, was our, that was our plan at that point in time. And I left my, my job first. Well, first we bought the Vanagon. What is a Vanagon? I understand you have one now as well. So what is a Vanagon? I've never heard that phrase. It's the best camper. It's the absolute best camper. It's a, it's a van with a pop top, a Westphalia, people probably call it. Oh yeah. yeah. Volkswagen Westphalia. Okay. So you had one then. So, so you, you're all ready to go in the in the van again. We bought right. it. For yeah. The trip. yeah, yeah, for the trip. Okay. So so basically, what we did was I took my three month maternity leave, and at this point, I was not yet president and COO of the company. Um, I had just gone through all these massive layoffs, and we'd just been imploding, imploding. 
And our plan was that Scott would work through my maternity leave and I'd work a little bit after my maternity leave, but that we'd continue to sort of build that nest egg a little bit and wait for Kai to get a little bit older to travel, our son Kai. And so that was the plan. And then what happened was as I came back from maternity leave, the two owners of the company who had been in retirement came out of retirement, fired the CEO who I loved, Bill, fired Bill and said, hey, Coco, we want you to do a turnaround with us. We'll make you COO to begin with, and we'll make you third owner of the company. Wow. And so then that's when Scott and I had the conversation of like, well, (laughs) only three years. It's going to be three years and then we're going to sell the company. You know, we're going to have like a really big nest egg. We can do anything for three years. Peter Vanagon, right. Yeah. Right. But that lasted. So Scott, that's then when you become stay-at-home dad, sort of before it's cool. And I was looking at the stats and in the year around 2000, only 5% of dads stayed home. Now it's more like 20 something percent, which is, which is great. It's gone up, but I loved your LinkedIn, by the way, people should go out and look at it because you write it as before cool, before it was cool. But you told me a story earlier about you know, what the dad scene was like and about going to the park with your long hair. And so maybe say more. I mean, how did you, how was it being a stay-at-home dad at that point? Well, I was 29. I had no idea what I was getting myself into uh, just with the job, let alone, you know, the need for community and support and what it would be like out in, like I said, going to the park. But yeah, I, I, my, my hair was kind of long and I had a big full red beard at then. And I remember showing up at the park near our house and there being a lot of moms around with kids and sort of a lot of chatter going on and talk. And when I'd arrive, that would quiet down. People would kind of huddle together and then slowly either move <laughs> further away or, or depart <laughs> and leave altogether. So it, I really didn't know how to go about. I didn't feel like it was appropriate for me to go and approach any of them. and I, really didn't know what to do. But nonetheless, I kept going back to the park and I had, you know, people uh, sort of yelling out of their window, things like put a hat on that baby and what are you doing? Um, Oh my goodness. Lots of, lots of uh, strange looks in the grocery store in the middle of a work day as, as a stay at home mom might relate to, uh, and maybe not all of them, but I think I probably frequently looked a little disheveled you know, carrying around one and later, later, later. Well, that'll, we'll get to that in the story, but later too. Yeah, very hard. And so Coco, how are you feeling this, uh, at this point about Scott staying home and you being a working mom? Well, so I, I mean, one of the requirements we had that if I was going to stay was that Scott and Kai we had to fly all over the place to shut down offices. And so the deal was Scott and Kai get to come with us um, we buy their plane ticket too, and they come with us everywhere we go because I nursed for three years and I was determined. Oh, that, wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and that has a whole other set of weird looks, but <laughs> but yeah, we were kind of hippy dippy and we still are in in some ways, you know, so a little unconventional. But I think for me, the the maternal draw was devastating. I was so jealous of Scott's situation and I so wanted to be with Kai at any, every moment, you know, we were living in 
San Bruno and then we moved to Mountain View and then we moved to Cupertino. Like we kept trying to get closer to my work so my commute would be less. And the moment I got in the car, I would call them. And, you know, I just, I wanted what he had. And and did you struggle with your sense of identity? Because you had a great job, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, by a lot of people's measures, I had a great job. It didn't, it wasn't without its challenges too. I have never touched a line of code in my life. I, you know, I, I looked like I was in my early twenties and my early thirties and I was surrounded, you know, pretty much back then every CIO was a guy, every sysadmin, network engineer, database administrator, security professional, they were all men, you know? So in a different way than Scott, but in my own way, I suffered from not fitting in. So that, you know, that was always a set of challenges that I would bring home to like, you know, Scott would be like, they don't like me. And I'd say, well, they don't like me either. (laughs) (laughs) You're both miserable. So Malia, your daughter is born in 2005. And Scott, you said that you were all set to hang up the diaper bag, back out it comes. And were you ever resentful or jealous of of Coco? Yeah, um, uh, but I think I felt more guilt than anything. Um, Why did you feel guilty? It was very apparent how much what I had was what she wanted so badly. And for me, it was very difficult. I can say that it's the hardest, you know, when the kids especially were very young and um, with a nursing executive wife also comes taking in the incoming milk every night and freezing it and thawing and heating and bottle feeding and diapering every everywhere and and supporting an executive level wife's just my my job I saw it was to take care of everything I could and make sure that when Coco got home I could hand her baby or babies and let her have them but you know having what she wanted so badly and it being something that I struggled to have a real identity around myself and mm-hmm. something that was really incredibly hard for me personally, um, you know, having not a support network really of, you know, other stay-at-home parents, not really ever having imagined myself in that role and not feeling like that I was enjoying it the way that she would. Working and having kids is hard in any circumstance, but in a, you guys, you're switched roles. You both have talked about sort of your own personal struggles. How did that impact your marriage? I feel like I'm Oprah Winfrey at this point. Tell (laughs) me about your marriage. Oh, there you go. Um, I mean, I think, I think, I, I think this is something that I hear from a lot of couples where one couple's career is just taking off and their sense of identity is becoming bigger and bigger and bigger and the others is wrapped up in theirs, you know, is it's a struggle that it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, which, whether you're the stay at home or the career person, that that dynamic is flawed. It's fundamentally flawed because the one person ends up like at dinner parties, not knowing how to say hello and and describe who they are. And the other person's like, well, and then I did this and this big deal. And then, you know, (laughs) and you're just sort of cast in that person's shadow in the professional setting. And, and it's also, I think hard. And I see this a lot from professional women who had big jobs and then they, 
pull out. It's like they used to have, like people used to look at them with such, you know, admiration. And now they're just like, and so who are you? Oh, you're the husband. Okay, well, you know. And, you know, that's one of the things women are challenged by. And and that was what Scott was challenged by, right? It's not a male-female thing. It's a, it's the role, it's the role thing. And then on the other side of it, you know, I was lucky in that because I ran the company, I could set the rules of, I do drop off, I do pick up, not every day, but a significant amount. I could invest in Malia's healthcare issues when she had them. I could say I never miss a field trip. I could volunteer in the classrooms. Like I could set those rules, but it still was like, you know, the jealousy of not having what the other person has can be completely destructive. John used to introduce himself at Accenture events as Mr. Liz. And I'd just look at him like, whoa, 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 you have a job. But, you know, I think he felt like he was just my shadow at all times. And it was very, it was so sad to, when I could see him doing that. Scott, if you think back on that, because we have an increasing audience of younger listeners, I mean, what advice might you give them and how do you handle that type of a role reversal? You know, I don't know if any, if anybody is really prepared when they, when they first have, have kids, especially if they have them in, in their later 20s when we did or maybe even earlier. I certainly didn't know, you know what, what I was getting into or what we were getting into. Uh, but I think my advice would be, if you can, think, think ahead about it. And for the, for the man or woman who's going to stay at home, try to think about how you will support yourself uh, with a community, how you'll build and support people around you outside of your spouse, which is there for you, but to help. I, I, I think some of my isolation was, was my own doing as well. You know, my own feeling like I didn't belong caused me to not reach out when maybe I had opportunities to and engage with other groups. There was a stay-at-home dads group that I learned about that, you know, they met at a park uh, once a week for an hour or two, uh, but I didn't really know how to make use of that or, or, or again, sort of find a, an identity in the role that I had. So finding a way to, you know, knowing what you're signing up for, figuring out ahead of time, talking it out with your spouse or a significant other, those would be important things. And, and Coco, what about you? Anything to add? I think sort of recognizing it, what Scott's saying. And f- for me, the other side of it was I, I got into this place where I felt like I could not fail. I was responsible for so much, you know, the, as the breadwinner, right? Like, oh my God, I, I can't fail. I can't let my guard down. I can't like not do this. And you know, and you live, you, you sort of grow into your lifestyle and your lifestyle becomes bigger. And then there's more that you can't fail on. And, <laughs> and, and so I, I think it, it is important to, you know, have faith in your, in yourself, like that you can fail. And for Scott on the other side, sort of have faith that he can get back in. I think one of the things I've noticed with people who have been out of the workforce for a long time is the longer you're out of the workforce, the less confident you are that you will be able to get back in. And, you know, you, you end up with almost like, almost disbelieving you were ever there, you know? (laughs) 
So Scott, how did you get back in? Well, uh, you know, the, the short story of how I got back in was one, I didn't, I didn't stay inactive in, in trying to pursue career, you know, when the kids were getting old enough that I had some time back. Uh, so I did pursue my own business in a creative field. I did feel like technology, like that, like I'd stepped off that ship and I wasn't sure how to get back on it. Uh, so I kind of tried out the, this would be my third act now then, uh, or maybe my fourth. Okay. If you considered Virginia Tech my first, then, you know, technology was my second. And then designing and building custom furniture mm-hmm. and having a business doing that was my third. And then uh, running into uh, a wall there where I realized, one, that pursuing something that you love and are passionate about doesn't mean that there aren't going to be weeds in the grass on that side of the river. I, I worked as hard as I've ever worked at anything uh, trying to make it in that in the design world and did well enough to keep doing it, but not well enough to pay myself enough to justify it. And so I started out thinking that the only way back in was for me to go back to school and pursue a master's degree. I really felt that I needed to retool. And I did a lot of work in preparation for that, which was in part retooling. But I was also surprised to find out you know, how much my past experience gave me context and how much the business problems that people were facing had changed shape or form in some way or other, but really still were fundamentally the same in many ways. So I uh, didn't end up going back to school, but uh, had done a lot of work training and then overseeing teams that did training as part of professional services back in technology in my uh, original career in technology, and then had kept some of that going, delivering uh, trainings and workshops at a company called The Tech Shop that gave me access to a lot of great expensive tooling and equipment for my furniture and business. And so I realized that I really love teaching and I really love educating people and I really loved that kind of engagement and uh, realized that that was a way for me to get back into, you know, get back into technology, a place where, where I could get back into it. So that's really the way that I got back in was kind of finding, finding that niche where I could, you know, where I had skills and capability uh, with the, with the tooling and technical skills that I had regained that I was able to, to make it back in. And, and Coco, and how does the then the Taos story end? Mm. Well, the Taos story ends in 2012. I so I'd grown the company back up to about 54 million in revenue. It had been 10 years that I'd been president and COO, and I was the only report to the CEO. And being second in some ways has its shelf life. And I stepped down from running the company and stayed on the board for two years and then sold my interest in 2014 and decided I was going to pursue something far more soul-serving. You know, I didn't know what it was going to be at the time, but I knew that it was going to be related to the women that I had cultivated as a community in, in my own sort of mechanism for creating an ecosystem of support and education as I was learning the ropes of my job. And, and I 
pulled together a whole bunch of CIOs who were women. And over time that grew and eventually it became my posse and my posse turned into Athena. What gave you the idea that it should be at least to start about women and boards? You know, that was a mandate that was given to me, actually, interestingly, in, in that I had been getting these women together on a quarterly basis because I needed a safe place to learn from to say, OK, so you've got this data center strategy and it's da, 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 what do you <laughs> that wasn't going to make me look even less like I knew what I was doing than I already looked because of who I am. Right. And in, in the context. And so I, I had this great ecosystem of women and I was invited by Yvonne Wassenaar, our mutual mm-hmm. friend who introduced yep. the two CEO of us, Puppet. CEO of Puppet. And Yvonne invited me to a roundtable discussion with Senator Mark Warner, who was, you know, in Silicon Valley, Hearts and Minds kind of tour. And this was a conversation between him and about 25 top female executives orchestrated by Yvonne. And he sat down at the table and said, what's on your minds? And pretty much immediately, the conversation was, why are women locked out of the top realms of business and the boardroom in particular? And that was, for me, it was like, oh, really? (laughs) And it wasn't, and it was an oh, really, mainly because I already, I was already in an environment where I expected to be the only woman, but I didn't expect to see it in legal and healthcare in like everywhere, right? You think you're the only one who's in that situation. I, I think I felt the same way, right? There yeah. Must, there must be more women somewhere else, somewhere right? Else. But there weren't. Not here. <laughs> yeah, I'm just not here. Right. Exactly. And so the, the mandate I got was a, a, fear, a flurry of emails the next day after that visit saying, that's it, Coco, you've got the ecosystem, go solve this problem. And, and that's how Athena started, was solving an acute problem. And then we just evolved over time. So Scott, you're, you're teaching, as you mentioned, ends up being sort of the front door to the company you're at, Databricks, right? So back to your early GOATS spark of interest in data, databases and data, data lakes and all of that. Are, are you satisfied with, with that career? Uh, do you feel like you're back with your sense of purpose or is that something you enjoy and love doing? You know, it, it's a challenge. I'll say that Databricks is a, is a, a hyper growth company. And it's, it's very exciting to be a part of. So I think what I alluded to earlier, you know, the realization that there, there are weeds wherever you go, you know, it, it doesn't come without, without its difficulties and challenges. But uh, I feel very lucky and appreciative to be where I am and to have evolved into the role at Databricks that I have evolved into. And uh, so I am very grateful for that and grateful to, to, have a career and one that I can uh, not only just be proud of the work that I do there, but also that financially is viable. And so, so yeah, I think I, I'm, I'm very satisfied, but I, I don't know if it'll be my last act. Yeah, no, I'm coming to that. But I want to ask you about your kids. So maybe your kids who, let's see, Kai, you said is 19 and Malia is how old? 16. 16. So maybe they're too young still to understand like what you've both been through as their parents, what lessons do you think that they've learned about how you've pursued family and career? And then secondly, what else do you hope they take away? I think kids know a lot more than we ever give them, you know, potentially credit for. And Scott and I have always been the parents who 
you know, our kids have, ne- as crazy as this may be, seem, our kids have never had a timeout. I, actually, I never had a, a, a grounding. They have had timeouts. They've never been grounded. You know, we've never taken anything away from them. We're just like the parents who talk out everything. We just don't do the because I told you so, which which has raised a lot a lot of um, pushback. You know, kids who want to know why you do what you do, and you know who are involved, and 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 not to say that other kids are not involved. I'm I'm simply saying that I think our kids have been very very involved in everything that's happened in our relationship to like the rockiest moments where everything was falling apart. They're part of that too, and then everything's coming back together and. And I think when Scott got the job with with Databricks, they saw this revival in him that was just so exciting for them. There were moments when Kai would say, Mom, I think Dad's a genius. <laughs> and I think that's something that's inspiring, right? Like you, you know, they, they want to see us happy. They want to see us pursuing things that make us, you know, feel big in the world beyond them. And so they get excited about what they see when we're pursuing big things and everything is big to them, even if it feels small to us. So I think, you know, as they watched us grow over the years and become different people and take on different roles and, you know, shift those around, I think that's always, it's been with a lot of curiosity and support from them. And Scott, do they miss having you around all the time? Yeah, I, th- I, I think they miss me. Uh, but. I, I would say to your original question, I think that our kids, if they learned anything, I think that they learned that that there there isn't a, a, a normal prescriptive solution that is the right fit for all sizes, uh, for all families, and and that really that's a, an individual kind of thing because we've never really been traditional in almost any sense as parents, as individuals, as a couple. So I think that's been a lesson for them is that, 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 that that's okay, that you don't need to go and try to find the mold to fit into to succeed. And just um, to counter when Coco was saying, uh, you know, about what Kai uh, said about me, I, I can't help but, but remember one of the realizations that had me decide at at the time when I was getting time back to not go back to the corporate world and to try the furniture design and that creative business, uh, we were driving in a car and, and, and he said, Hey dad, uh, you used to work, didn't you? And I said, yeah, I did. And he said, what did you do? And I said, I built and designed databases. And he said, can we go see one? And I thought, you know, I don't really know if anyone is still using any, Thing that I built. And if they are, it's probably been changed and uh, probably no one would know that I personally had anything to do with it. So there's a bit of a, a sense for me at that point. I remember that being a, a turning point in my mind and thinking, I'd like to make some things in the physical world as well and try that out. Um, I see both pursuits as creative. Coco, uh, with Athena, I feel just because that's how I've gone to know you and you're so passionate and so inspiring about it. I mean, do you feel that that you are giving back to your soul and doing something that is soul fulfilling, as you said before? Yes. I mean, my kids and Scott witnessed me unhappy for a lot of my time at Taos. You know, here I was sort of like resilient on the outside and 
building a company and seemingly, you know, on top of everything and it was growing. And like, you know, I, I had this external view of me, but then I'd come home and it was, you know, there was a lot that I was unhappy about that was not soul satisfying. And now the kids know mom loves what she does. You know, they get excited about it. And yeah, they're so jazzed. They can talk about it. They know what it is. Um, to Scott's point about like, can we go see that database? They know what I do and they and they think it's awesome and cool. And, and I think mainly that's because I love it so much. So I thought about naming this podcast, I'm Not Done Yet. So what aren't each of you done with yet? Well, I'm definitely not done with Athena. <laughs> I want it to be big, big, executive <laughs> education. Billions on, of dollars. Yes, yep. executive yep. education on demand. I want to corner a market that has not been served yet. So, Okay, Scott? Well, um, as far as this act goes, um, you know, Databricks is a very fast growing company with a, a huge success. And I feel like I've been able to be a big, uh, a part of that. And so I want to see that through and see through to, you know, building an iconic software company. Beyond that, I don't know what the future holds. Well, what about the trip? Is the trip ever going to come back? Cause I understand you have a new Vanagon or a new Westphalia. Oh yeah. Yeah. What about the trip? What about the trip, Coco? I don't know if I'll ever be well, able to pull Okay. So, yeah. So we're, we're not a, you know, we have these two kids and a house and a dog and a cat and lots of bills. And the dog just cost $10,000 with her surgery last week. Oh my goodness. So, Dogs. you know, yeah. we're, we're not at vocational freedom quite yet, but you know, when we get there, I think both of us are, Scott's a little bit more like, okay, you know, I can, I can sort of sit back and do things that I want to do. And I'm kind of like, I'm going to lean in more and do more things. You know, like we don't necessarily know how that will reflect in work, but we do know that we can go do it from our house in Croatia or follow Kai around and follow Malia around and just, you know, we're very able to be transient people. We're, we're very able to be nomadic and we want to be. And that, so I, what I see is that whether we let work go or not, we will be, we, in our vocational freedom, we will be travelers. We will be all over the place. So I'm going to vote now to have an Athena board meeting in Croatia. Oh, so okay. Get on the road soon. So anyway, thank you both so much for being so candid and sharing your joint story. It's great. I think, and Coco, you know this, we probably have lots of listeners in similar situations. And it's very rare, and Scott and I talked about this before, to hear it from us why I wanted to do it together, to hear both of you. And my husband and I are in the same situation. I think it's very difficult. And I suggest that, Scott, I think you should write a book, or you guys should write a book together. But thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Thanks for joining me today to listen to the Third Act podcast. You can find show notes, guest bios, and more at thirdactpodcast.com. If you enjoyed our show today, please subscribe and write a review on your favorite podcast platform. I'm your host, Liz Tinkham. I'll be back next week with another guest who's found new meaning and fulfillment in the third act of their life.